What I'm really passionate about is trying to uh, sort of extend global mobility rights to everybody so that we don't have such kind of winners and losers of the global border system, which I think is exactly uh, what we're seeing now, this kind of uh, observance that uh, the world is not equal. There's not an equality of opportunity for everybody. And I think that remote work makes that even starker. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshovsky, and welcome to episode 154 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to introduce you to Lauren Razavi, the author of the new book, Global Natives, which is out now at Holloway Books, and she is also the director of special projects at Safety Wing, where she has the Plumia Project, which is on a mission to build the first nomad internet country. And during this interview, Lauren and I discuss how her Iran Iranian background influenced her to become a digital nomad all the way back in 2013, what we as a community can do to tackle many of the issues plaguing local populations of cities that have become nomad hubs. And we, of course, discuss her work at Plumia and their goal to create the first nomad border pass by 2025. And we also talked about a lot of the topics that she discusses in her book, Global Natives, which you should definitely go and check out. Before we jump into the interview, though, make sure to uh, subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers. And if you enjoy this podcast, I can guarantee you will also love being a remote insider subscriber. So uh, if that sounds like you, head on over to thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, all one word, uh, and subscribe over there. As always, if you enjoy this episode, share it on Twitter or Instagram and tag me at Mitkoka, M-I-T-K-O-K-A, or send it to a friend that you think will enjoy it. I would really appreciate that. Uh, if you're not a subscriber of this podcast, uh, hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It takes uh, literally uh, one second. Uh, if you're on Spotify, hit the follow button. That way you never miss another new episode. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this enlightening conversation with Lauren Razavi. All right, Lauren, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here all the way from uh, Amsterdam. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm super, super excited. Obviously, uh, you're a big name in the digital nomad space. You have a new book out uh, called Global Native that we're going to talk about. You're the head of Plumia, which is uh, an amazing, um, I think, endeavor. Can we call it that? Is that the right uh, word to use there uh, into, you know, kind of allowing digital nomads to, to travel more freely? But I want to start with something that I found very interesting because I, we have something in common. So I read that you're actually, you have an Iranian background. Is that correct? That's correct. My dad is a refugee from Iran to the UK in the 1980s. Okay. So I read that you, and correct me if I'm wrong here, as a kid, you were actually traveling around to meet other Iranians and kind of like seeing the Iranian community uh, around, you know, where you grew up. And, and to me, that sounded very 
familiar to so i'm bulgarian i immigrated to the united states and when i was a kid one of the ways in which my family traveled was that we would like travel to other cities where there was a bulgarian community and maybe my parents had some friends there and so that was like a way for us to to go see other cities and and to me that was a very impactful part of becoming a digital nomad and i'm curious was that similar for you like what did that sort of travel to these other iranian communities did that contribute at all to your you know eventual uh, future as a digital nomad? I think it definitely did. So um, my father is the youngest of eight children, um, all of whom have their own children, some of them grandchildren now as well. So when I was growing up, uh, we didn't really take family holidays. Like I grew up in the UK and the kind of classic holiday there is, you know, you go to the beach in Spain for a week or you go to a holiday resort um, in some like sun-kissed European destination. Um, and we never did that. Like we drove across Europe to Germany to visit family in Hamburg and we uh, flew over to the US to visit family there. But everywhere that we went, uh, it was like visiting a little pocket of the Iranian diaspora. So not only was it kind of going to different countries and really kind of seeing borders as, I guess, a thing that wasn't really restricting uh, the love and the kind of friendship and, and the family connections that you have around the world. Um, yeah, it, it just a, a very... I think it's a, a very uh, particular way of kind of viewing the world from a young age kind of uh, kind of led me to become a digital nomad. Like I already had that kind of identity, I guess, of a global citizen. Um, and so it was just very natural that when I kind of grew up, because I was already experiencing these different cultures, these different countries, kind of understanding that you can go and experience a particular culture that's not of that country in that place. I think all of this was super formative to, um, to that experience of uh, then looking at the world as uh, kind of my, my playground, uh, like thinking about my life in a very global and kind of borderless way. Yeah, it's funny that you that you call it your playground because I often say it's a sandbox, right? Like I can play in one corner of the sandbox and build castles there or like why wouldn't you want to build castles all over? And, and I think it's almost like the digital nomad movement in some way was was like seeded by the mass immigrations that you had in the 80s and 90s because you now have a much larger generation growing up with these like multicultural roots and 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 you know travel was a lot easier so they maybe went back and visited family where they were from and you you have this this global citizen like you mentioned mentality sort of growing up but how did you end up becoming a digital nomad because i read that you were a travel writer right so how did that like, how did you end up, you know, finding yourself now fully living as a digital nomad? Because you did that quite early. Like, I think of myself now in the grand scheme of things as be being a digital nomad early, but you're you're way earlier than that. So, so how did that happen? Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, during university. Um, I sort of launched a career for myself in freelance journalism and specifically travel writing. Um, I really like a challenge. So I think someone said to me in like my first or second year of university, huh, you can't make your living as a travel writer. And I was like, huh, challenge accepted. Uh, and just kind of ended up building up this really great portfolio, traveling a lot in service of the writing that I was doing. Um, and that was in about 2013. So I just finished my undergrad degree. And I had started a creative writing master's degree, but I realized that the terms were only about eight weeks long, three terms per year, eight or nine weeks. I can't quite remember um, the specifics, um, but I just realized that I could travel 
whenever term wasn't on, whenever it wasn't the kind of university semester um, outside of those kind of eight week periods, I could travel around. And actually the position I was in at the time doing a lot of travel writing, it was a real benefit to travel around. I was going to be able to kind of tell more stories and see more things and kind of, yeah, build my, my craft and my competence as well as kind of my travel experiences. Um, and so from there, uh, I ended up sort of going a bit more into the world of technology and business writing, as well as travel writing. Um, I was a foreign reporter for a while, which basically means, um, I suppose, not telling people where to go on holiday, but instead telling people um, what's going on in the world, which is something I was really passionate about. And so by about 2015, I was sent out on assignment uh, by the Guardian newspaper to cover this weird new trend of co-working retreats, essentially nomad groups, nomad communities coming together. And so I flew out to Bali and I wrote a story about a company called Hacker Paradise, um, who I think are still going uh, today, uh, although I think like the founders and the team has changed quite a bit over the years. But I went out and covered um, covered that kind of story, that trend for The Guardian, uh, and in doing so, realized that there was this term, digital nomad, that kind of referred to people like me who were traveling around the world, location independent, building remote careers. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of learned that that's what I was. You know, I'd been kind of living as a nomad for a couple of years, really kind of... Um, uh, making location work for me when I discovered that there were other people doing that too and that digital nomad was the term that people were using to describe it. Um, so yeah, I'd say that I quite accidentally tripped into being a digital nomad, but with the gift of hindsight, it all makes perfect sense from my upbringing. Um, and yeah, I think that I've really... I suppose I've, I've always written and I've always used writing as a vehicle to be able to, to kind of travel because that's what really kind of fills me with joy. So it's just kind of following those gut instincts, I think, that, uh, that led me to become a nomad and then has led me to kind of um, do all this work around nomads now. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, are you familiar with Upton Saidi and his work? Yeah, I am. I know Upton quite well. Yeah, so he was on the podcast. He's 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 a friend of mine, and it just reminds me so much of like his story. You know, where he was sent on an assignment to to Bali to do to cover what it's like to work as a as a digital nomad, and then three years later or something like that, he's a digital nomad himself. So it's like you know, people are getting sent on these assignments. And they're like, well, this actually looks a lot better than what I was doing back home. So uh, I think I think that's interesting. One of the things I want to ask you about because it's I, I feel like it's kind of raw at the moment or kind of happening at the moment is as you know I, I became a digital nomad in like 2016-17 and one of the things I was really passionate about was that digital nomadism was a way to help other countries right like as somebody who grew up in Bulgaria I was always saying we want digital nomads in Bulgaria right like they're coming in with a lot of money uh, you know they're coming with dollars they can spend in Bulgaria it helps the local economy but now one of the things that you're seeing is almost this like pushback from local communities. And, and one of the things, there was an article a few months ago about don't come to Mexico City and work here. And now there's this uh, poster going around, which is basically saying it's like all over Reddit and Twitter, which is essentially saying something of the point of like, you know, if you're working remotely, you're a plague and locals hate you, go home, right? And even though I think that's a minority of the population that thinks that way and responds that way, they do have kind of a point, right? Like we are 
making life more difficult in some ways, especially around like housing costs. What do you think is the answer to that? Like, what can we, obviously the government, the local government there has a lot of responsibility around what sort of policies they create to to help that. But what do we as a community, what can we do to help that? Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a really interesting kind of area to, to look at and think about right now. Um, and I suppose like my starting point for understanding this um, is really, you know, what, what is this a symptom of? That's the kind of question that I ask myself. And I think it's a, it's a symptom of the institutions that are governing all of our lives, wherever we live in the world, being woefully outdated for the era of the internet and the era of remote work specifically. So I think one of the reasons that Mexico in particular has seen a huge uh, backlash pretty much since the beginning of the pandemic um, against nomads and remote workers is one, because a lot of people went, you know, Mexico was one of the countries with the uh, most lax border policy in the world around COVID. So if you were looking for somewhere to go, if you were a cross-border relationship and needed a country you could both go to, um, that's kind of the, the place that you went. But I think it's quite understandable that particularly in Mexico, locals are really fighting back against this because essentially what happens is somebody holding a Mexican passport is not welcome to go and remote work casually in the United States. But Americans, people from the United States, are welcome to kind of come and remote work casually in Mexico City um, or indeed in, in other places in Mexico as well. I think fundamentally, it's that kind of right to global mobility that really needs to be equalized because when you come from a country where you don't kind of have these passport privileges and you can feel the impact of gentrification happening around you and kind of uh, making life day to day a lot harder, especially around the affordability of prop property. Um, it's just completely understandable that there would be um, very negative feelings uh, towards those who do have those privileges in terms of their passport. And so what I'm really passionate about is trying to uh, sort of extend global mobility rights to everybody so that we don't have such kind of winners and losers of the global border system, which I think is exactly uh, what we're seeing now, this kind of uh, observance that uh, the world is not equal. There's not an equality of opportunity for everybody. And I think that remote work makes that even starker because suddenly you need to hold a certain passport in order to access global work, work that pays a global salary. Um, and so many people are being restricted from doing that right now. So I think that the biggest change that kind of needs to happen in the world is around giving people access to global mobility rights by default. But I think for the digital nomad community, um, there's, I suppose, a responsibility to try and be good citizens wherever you are. And in my experience, and it's many years of experience now, I'm getting old, um, I think that nomads do take a, a kind of a stewardship approach to the places that they spend time. Um, you know, they are there to kind of um, not just visit, not just kind of use and abuse, perhaps in the way that tourism did in the past, but instead to actually kind of integrate and get a sense of home and routine in these different places around the world. And I think the more kind of integration that we have between locals and nomads, the more that we can kind of, each of us kind of make that effort to not be the kind of 
asshole with the good passport, um, I, I think is is the the kind of best solution that we on an individual level can kind of chase after right now. Um, and, you know, I, just to maybe try and make that a bit less abstract. I mean, like if you're staying in Bali for a month or you're staying in Mexico City for a month, can you go to a local co-working space and can you host a talk about your area of expertise? Can you find a young university grad or student who uh, would really love like some advice about what it's like to be a global remote worker? Um, Because I think that those individual interactions can be really, really impactful. And they certainly have been in my life of actually just hearing somebody's story and actually being able to understand how you might be able to kind of replicate uh, some aspects of a person's life. This is one of the reasons that biographies are such a popular sort of format for a book right we all kind of want to give some shape to what the future might look like for us um based on on how other people are doing it so yeah I think nomads need to be good citizens on the individual level and we also need to rebuild our kind of institutions from the ground up yeah I think there's a I think mentioning co-working spaces here is actually very a, a very good point because you'll see certain co-working spaces that um are very focused and kind of like do a good job of creating opportunities for nomads to kind of give back because I think nomads are are very much willing to do that and like want to do it. However, at least from my personal experience and, and you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong, they won't go out of their way to do it. Like they already have so much decision fatigue of like, where am I going to live? And like, which Airbnb I'm going to be in and which coffee shop I'm going to work out of that. If you make it almost like if you, if they, if they have to jump through too many hoops, they're not going to do the research, especially in a different language of where do I go donate my time or where to go do this. So I feel like co-working spaces here actually do have a little bit of, um, I don't want to say responsibility because that's putting the work on their plate, but it's almost like that is the point of, um, that is the linchpin point, so to say, of of how we can like fix this. Would you agree with that, or do you think I'm missing something? Um, I think that I think the co working spaces are just like such important infrastructure and I don't think it's a bad thing if they are kind of um, rising in status and sort of rising in the number of responsibilities that they might have to um, a remote working community Um, because they're real like they're real kind of hubs of activity you know if you are a nomad you're probably going to meet local entrepreneurs at the co-working space not at the coffee shop or maybe also at the coffee shop but you you know what I mean it's kind of like you know you can go there and kind of engage with the the local scene kind of get involved with the local ecosystem so I do think co-working spaces are absolutely great I completely agree with you that um, nomads are kind of lazy users is how I would kind of TLDR what you said Um, and I don't think that we should you know I don't think we should moralize I don't think we should say well the nomad community just needs to put the effort in because you kind of have to design for reality and nobody wants more admin to do nomads are already very very buried under piles of bureaucracy and paperwork in simply living their lives I think more so than other people so I think we we need to be able to design ways that need to need to, to sort of be that infrastructure for nomads to be able to really seamlessly contribute um, and I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into the kind of Plumia project but this is definitely one of the challenges that we're thinking a lot about and trying to kind of shape um, what the future of different sorts of contribution to a local economy, to a local community might look like for nomads um, and sort of building the technology to to make it all a lot easier. 
Yeah, one of the things that you said that I kind of want to circle back to because uh, I want to explore this is how you said that remote work is almost um, you, like creating a lot of separation in, in who can and who can't do it. But from my point of view, is I've always looked at it as the ultimate democratizer of opportunity, right? Because even though, yes, there are certain laws at the moment that say that if you're, you know, Italian, for example, you can't work for a company in the U.S. full time. However, what I find is that more and more companies, especially ones that are a bit more in that startup region, don't necessarily need to hire you full time. They hire you as a contractor who is essentially full time, but just on paper isn't. Why don't you view it as that sort of democratization? Like what is missing from it to be the ultimate democratization of opportunity tool? So I completely agree with you that remote work is like the best chance we have at democratizing access to global work, opportunities, uh, etc. Um, whole wholeheartedly agree. The problem that you have at the moment, and I'll talk a little bit about the solutions that are kind of already emerging as well, but the problem that you have at the moment is that you might have, uh, let's say you've got a graphic designer who is based in India and who has an Indian passport. This graphic designer is badass and she could definitely do the job that she's found advertised at a Silicon Valley company for a very high global salary. However, on that job application, on the kind of listing website, it may say or it may not say, but this may be the case, that actually you have to be an American green card holder, green card holder uh, already in order to apply for that position. So what ends up happening to that Indian graphic designer is that she only really has access to um, work that is either, as you describe, fully globally remote, genuinely so, or opportunities in the local market. And in the local market, we're seeing this a bit already, you have a lot of startups, you have a lot of big global companies actually outsourcing to a country like India. And so a talented graphic designer from India may well only be able to access a local opportunity that is outsourced and is therefore the same work, but actually just being paid a fraction of what she would pay, uh, be paid on a Silicon Valley salary. Um, and so while it should be the case that anybody in the world can do any job that they find and are qualified for, in reality at the moment, so much of this is still being organized across uh, within national borders. And it it's very hard to cross those national borders if it requires companies to do extra work in order to make it happen. And I think that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, there's still huge, huge inequalities in access to remote work. I mean, that's one, one aspect is global mobility. I think there's a secondary aspect, which is about internet infrastructure. So for example, Nigerians uh, just do not have access to fast enough Wi-Fi to be doing video calls uh, in, in most of the country. So that's a kind of another restriction. Um, but yeah, we really need to kind of do something so that people are able to access those work opportunities um, without discrimination based on their country of origin, based on the passport that they hold. One of the promising kind of solutions uh, that we can see popping up in the market for this uh, are companies like Deal and Remote. So they're essentially these companies which act as an employer of record, which basically means that if you have a company, let's say a Silicon Valley company that wants to hire somebody in India or Poland or whichever country it may be, 
this intermediary company can sort out all of the contracting and the payroll so that it's locally compliant within that nation state for that individual employee. And then the Silicon Valley company doesn't have to do all that extra work that's really undesirable uh, and is going to sort of take extra resource that they don't want to give, but instead just knows that a percentage of that salary needs to be spent on the the kind of administration of it. So I think that's really promising. I think companies like that are really plugging a gap that has been created by bad government policy around borders, around travel. Um, And we're very lucky that they are doing that. I say it's not enough though. I think we need as well that kind of institutional, that like policy change, which is essentially just about recognizing that people's right to movement, uh, let's say like there's a climate disaster, your right to mobility should be protected across borders, not just within national borders as it is at the moment. It's like the the UN uh, Human Rights Charter protects national mobility, but not global mobility. And that just seems wild in a world where everything, knowledge, trade, information, finance is globalized. Actually, people's rights really are not. So how do you, and and I totally agree with that, by the way, in terms of like, I do believe that, I mean, I've been a very big proponent of of having a second citizenship, perhaps because I grew up in an Eastern European country that used to be behind the Iron Curtain. And I know something can go wrong, right? So I've always been like, hey, have a second citizenship, maybe even a residency, just so if you have to get out, you can get out for whatever reason. Like you said, a natural disaster, you know, a war in Ukraine, for example, the people who had second citizenships in Ukraine are with a country outside of Ukraine, were able to leave far more easily. But how do you actually do that? Because while I completely understand the how this makes sense for a remote worker, from a remote worker's you know, point of view, the pushback from the community that is not remote working is going to say, well, then why wouldn't everyone just leave and go get jobs in other countries, right? So how do you kind of, um, I guess, separate who gets this, who doesn't? Like, how do you decide on that? So I suppose the first thing that I want to talk about um, is I do think we're entering an era right now where countries are in a battle for talent. You know, we, we've had startups and companies in battles for talent, uh, particularly software talent, for many, many years now. And I'm seeing that effect more and more in countries and the nomad visa programs they're offering and the kind of tax benefits, even remote incentives that will pay you to relocate to a particular uh, city or or town in the world. I think we're seeing a lot of activity um, in that direction right now. So when I think sort of 10, 20 years into the future, I do fully expect people to have this relationship with countries that is about what is the right package for me? You know, where where do I want to go and kind of put my time, but also my taxes? Like, what? how do I kind of want to set this up? So I think we're, we're moving towards a situation where more people will move around the world um, because countries are becoming more and less competitive. And that goes for kind of the citizenship you hold as much as the kind of like uh, statuses that you want to, to take in other countries. I guess in the same way that you just said, I think more and more people will ensure themselves against the risk of being attached to just one nation state. And actually it'll be very desirable if not to have a second or third passport, but to have residency and to have ties in different countries. So that's one thing um, that I think is really important to kind of note. Um, 
that we are just kind of entering this this space now where there's quite a different relationship between governments and individuals. And so much of that is to do with remote work, because actually, if you're a remote worker, if you're a digital nomad, you can choose from every country in the world. Uh, it may be a lot of paperwork and hassle, but that's indeed like the, the kind of period that we've come to uh, in history where that is something that people are reassessing. Um, I think to to kind of speak as well to the how do we actually make that change? Like, what does it look like a uh, more kind of globally mobile world? One of the solutions that I'm working on um, through the Plumia project, uh, which is the project that I run at Safety Wing, is called the Nomad Border Pass. And we're hoping to launch this in 2025. And the basic premise is to be able to apply in through our system uh, sort of a one-time visa application that will give you access to 10 plus countries uh, to remote work in for up to 90 days um, in each place. And you'll only have to renew that visa every five years. So this is, I suppose, our kind of first step from what exists today and the kind of messy landscape of digital nomad visas that has emerged since the pandemic trying to bring some order and some international standards to how nomads move around the world. At first, that is going to be uh, very much like an opt-in kind of subscription sort of service um, for members of our, so we have at the moment, uh, the Plumia community, which is an online community, and we test all of our new products with people directly through that community. So at first, we'll be kind of testing that out with our members, and then it will become kind of a, a subscription-based service. Um, and the kind of wider vision that we have is to be able to offer something within a decade that's kind of akin to citizenship as a service. So you get your passport, you can take out your insurance, um, you can get income protection. We have a retirement product in the works at Safety Wing. But the idea is to try and like bundle some of this together into a sort of citizenship membership. And the intention is very much that that will be um, a subscription product, but we will sort of also explore the the kind of tax side of things. I, I kind of started smiling because I was thinking about, oh my gosh, it's going to, I think it's Kevin Kelly. Usually if you don't know who the tech writer who thought about this is, the answer is it's Kevin, Kevin Kelly, Kelly kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But there was this, um, this quote about how the future of technology usually lies in bundling and unbundling. Right. So you have like the unbundling of music, right, where you had to buy each individual song on iTunes and then you got Spotify. Right. And it's like all bundled together. But then you start getting unbundling kind of thing. Right. And it's almost like we're seeing that now with citizenship where what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is that instead of going out there and trying to have and I've called it before in the past, like a citizenship stack. Right. The same way that you might have like a tech stack of like I use this and this and this tool, having a citizenship tech stack that works best for you you're kind of the idea is to bundle it together where you go and you apply for one thing that then gives you some sort of limited access to a few countries am i understanding that correctly yep that is correct um and the kind of bigger project there i suppose is to to replicate something akin to a national citizenship but offered at the global level and offered as a purely opt-in service. So at the moment, if you think about it, where people are born in the world, essentially what happens is 
you happen to be born in Bulgaria or you happen to be born in the UK. And it's like you have this automatic subscription attached to your existence from when you were born. In some countries like the United States and Eritrea, this can be especially bad because you have to pay essentially exit taxes if you don't want that to have that citizenship anymore. Um, but what we're proposing is very much like something that human adults can decide whether they would like to be a part of and whether it's kind of a system that works for them. Uh, and I guess additionally, I'd say that I completely expect there to be more projects like this. Um, it's sort of internet countries and citizenship as a service um, in the years to come, because I think that it's not just going to be nation states. It's not just going to be countries competing for talent. It's also going to be new players in the kind of services that were traditionally provided by a nation. I also think it'll be cities because I think we're seeing this um, this trend of cities almost like branding themselves as a certain type of city, right? Like I remember there was an article in like 2018 where Cleveland in Ohio, they wanted to be known as like block land, right? Like they wanted to have a lot of crypto people going there. You're now seeing this with, with Miami in some ways, right? So I think cities are almost in some ways rising up and saying like, hey, don't just come to the United States come here specifically Tulsa is doing the same thing with their remote program right like don't just come to the US come to Tulsa and I think cities and, and more of these visionary mayors are really starting to think globally as opposed to just locally so what are I mean I'm assuming you can't tell us the countries that are you know that you're in conversations with in you know in terms of this but can you tell us a little bit about like I'm curious because as a digital nomad I like to think about what governments should think about us or what they you know I kind of like put on them what what I think they think about us but in having conversations with governments what are their views towards us as a digital nomad community because I think as a community historically we've kind of thought that nobody knows about us and we're very rare and you usually start a conversation with like I don't know if you've ever heard of a digital nomad and then having to explain it but I think people are becoming more educated about that. So how do governments out there that you've spoken with or government officials, how do they think about us as a community? How do they define us? How do they look at us? What are the opportunities they see for us? Honestly, um, it's at a very, very early stage with every government that I've spoken to right now. And when I say that, I mean that there is some awareness of digital nomads because of all of the kind of media and publicity that nomads have gotten as a community over the past couple of years. But, you know, every time I give a talk to a government, I did a talk earlier this year for the United Nations. Every time I'm doing that, uh, I'm having to start from the very beginning. Like, what is a digital nomad? How did they get here? How long have people been doing this? Why is it that you, you as a policymaker should care about this demographic? And it's obviously really interesting because so many political decisions are still made based on the kind of national elections infrastructure. You know, how will people react to this at election time? Um, and I think that lens is very, very present. And I think going to become more and more challenging for policymakers to kind of cope with, with the realities of what people are actually doing and how people are actually kind of moving around the world. But yeah, I would say that there is there is excitement. There is a sense of possibility with nomads. I think that um, particularly when it comes to like the knowledge economy and knowledge workers, there's already a very positive kind of um, approach there from governments. But with nomads in general, I mean, it's absolutely amazing to me that I think it's more than 50 now, more than 50 digital nomad visas have launched. 
And yet the majority of countries, even those who have nomad visas, don't have a clear understanding of what a nomad is, um, what they're looking for. Uh, and if I can add just maybe one more thing on this, I think that the the primary problem that we've seen so far with nomad visa programs that have launched is that they are routes to residency, right? They are like, come and stay in this country for a year. And if you like it, you can extend for another year. And if you really like it, you can move absolutely everything here and just become not necessarily a citizen, but certainly like a long-term resident of that place. Yeah, they're like lead magnets in a way for in like business terms. <laughs> And like you can see why that makes sense from the perspective of the country, the government, the policymaker. But if you actually think about nomads and what we tend to want, most of us aren't looking to become expats for two to three years in different countries. What we're really looking to do is to be able to travel for somewhere between 60 and 90 days at a time to different destinations, know that it's okay for us to remote work there and to have easy access points to actually return to the destinations that we like the most. And I think that is what the kind of next gen nomad visas really need to deliver. And that's certainly the direction that we are pushing in with the nomad border pass, because we can't have this system supposedly designed for nomads, even though many, many policymakers at this point haven't really spoken to nomads, and which is prioritizing this idea of route to residency instead of prioritizing mobility and flexibility, which I think are much more desirable to the vast majority of nomads. Yeah, I think like one of the things that at least like I've noticed from looking at a lot of these digital nomad visas is they're really a tourist visa with like some new flashy branding on them, right? Like there's a lot of this, like they're essentially using old policy and changing around a few things in order to like get it out there. And it's really at its core, it's not like you said, intended for the user, right? They're not like really digital nomad visas. They're just rebranded tourist visas with, with, with a few things tweaked here and there. And that helps if you need to pass something quickly because I, I mean, you've worked with governments. I'm imagining everything moves at like a snail pace, right? So it's like, it's it's quite slow. And that's one of the ways to to move things through a little quicker. But I want to shift over a little bit and talk about your book because uh, I'm very excited about it. I think it's talking about a lot of things that are very interesting. Can you sort of tell us, um, you know, the TLDR of what is the summary of the book? Who is it, who is it for? And why should someone pick up a copy? Sure. So... My book is called Global Natives. Um, it is about the past, present, and potential of borderless work of the kind of nomad movement. Um, and it's very much a big ideas book. Um, there's this kind of weird genre in nonfiction called big ideas. And it's kind of like, here's how the world works and here's how it may work better, I guess is the TLDR on that form of book. Um, and it's for nomads, but it's also for people interested in the, the kind of future of work from anywhere, the future of nomads, where remote work might be taking us um, and kind of what a more borderless world might look like at this point um, in, I guess, in history, but also just in terms of like the technology that we have available um, and some of the trends, like you mentioned much earlier on uh, in our conversation around, for example, um, people being raised with multiple identities, multiple passports, kind of having these international cross-border experiences. Um, and so, yeah, it's really looking at um, kind of where digital nomads and the ideas driving their movement have kind of come from. It looks at what has happened since COVID and it looks at the prospects for the future. Um, so particularly, uh, there's a very chunky chapter 
all around the history and future of passports, kind of uh, talking about some of the main issues that we need to address uh, to, to kind of progress the global mobility situation and go forward. Um, there's also a chapter dedicated to borderless living, which is this kind of like broader idea of where business models might be going um, uh, for the kind of nomad and remote work target market. So that's a lot about subscriptions, including um, the sort of new new rise of, uh, of hotel subscriptions. So being able to kind of uh, live full time at hotels and what that might look like in a future where nomads would kind of pay an annual subscription to a brand uh, and then move around different buildings in the world run by that brand versus your kind of more traditional 12-month contract in a city uh, or indeed the kind of short-term Airbnb accommodation that most of us are using at the moment. Um, So I guess that's why I I talk about the past, present and potential, really tried to kind of look at some of the history of these ideas, even predating the internet, what's kind of going on at the moment, some of the challenges that we face in the immediate term, and then the kind of world that we can build out of the the last 10 years, the kind of first 10 years, I suppose, of the nomad movement. Yeah, I think um, one thing that you touched on there that's very interesting is I think housing. Like, obviously, work is going to change very much with remote work, with digital nomads. We're seeing a lot more entrepreneurship and, and different versions of that as sort of you know, remote work kind of takes shape and and we start seeing these sort of relationships with companies. But I think housing is one of those other really big topics that are going to have to change in order to accommodate this new lifestyle. Like, I feel like a lot of the solutions that we're seeing now are almost like old world solutions for a new world problem. And we have not yet fully seen like a remote first solution to this problem. And so I think housing is one of these very, very interesting uh, areas that are going to be, uh, we're going to see a lot of change. And I'm curious, kind of in wrapping up, I want to be respectful of your time. I know I know you're very busy, but if you look at the future, you know, 20 years from now, I know that you talked about um, the Nomad Border Pass. It's something that you want to get done by 2025. But if we look 20 years into the future, you know, in the 2040s, what do you hope that the world will look like at that point for for the digital nomad community. What do you hope governments will have done by then? Just kind of like, what are your what are your hopes and, and visions for that future? Uh, so I think number one, and I keep banging on about it, but it is really important. So I'm going to forgive myself. Uh, is just this idea of global mobility. Um, I think we we live in a world right now where uh, a huge number of people, an increasing number of people view global mobility as this kind of inherent part of their lives. They live their cross-border lives and they uh, want to move around the world in this way. When I think 20, 30 years into the future um, and even longer, I think that we need the institutions, the the kind of rules, the systems to just catch up with the reality of how people are living their lives and how people should be free to live their lives um, in a world that's remote work and internet enabled. So I think that's like the number one thing. Um, What might that look like? I mean, it would be great if we didn't all spend so much time queuing at borders. Um, And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential there for, Um, a kind of easing of the bureaucracy and easing of the kind of like friction points of travel. And I really hope that that is a reality. Um, I agree with you that housing is a super, super important issue. Um, 
particularly in terms of sustainability. A lot of people assume that uh, digital nomads have really, really bad damaging uh, lifestyles when it comes to climate change, because perhaps we fly more than uh, people who only go on vacation once a year. And that's very valid. But actually, air travel itself is such a small fraction uh, of carbon emissions. Even if everybody stopped flying, nomads weren't allowed to ever take a long haul ever again. The bigger problem actually is housing, is actually making sure that the buildings that we're living and working in um, and sort of any any building that people are accessing really um, is energy efficient, is built with good materials, is essentially uh, meeting the very highest standards of sustainability. And so again, when I think into the future, there's like some joke uh, somebody said to me the other day. It's like, if you think governments move slowly, uh, you should try the real estate sector. So I do think <laughs> that um, I do think that there's some work to do there. Like it can be a bit of a slow moving kind of ship um, at real estate, but thinking 20 or 30 years into the future, I would hope that we have really high standards of flexible housing available, not just to nomads, knowledge workers, Roman around the world but actually available to everybody um, and actually priced in a way where people don't feel shut out of their own city or like they have to move out to the suburbs in order to kind of live their lives um, so I have a lot of hope around uh, around that area as well and I think maybe the final thing that I want to say on this is I would really hope that we have much, much more infrastructure for nomad parents and nomad families in, in 20, 30, 40 years time. I think that there's so much opportunity for disruption in that space right now and this kind of unbundling of education, uh, the various components of education. I think of it as like education and socialization, the kind of two aspects that you need um, for a child. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's probably my, my hopes for the future. So, uh, like you mentioned, you know, real estate, it's moving just as slowly, if not slower than government. And one of the ways to speed this progress up is to have more people get involved, right? Like you've done a lot of work around this and speaking about policy and, and how we can change this, but it, things would move faster if we have more people kind of doing this work, but it can be quite, I think, scary for a lot of people to get involved in that way. So, you know, as somebody who's gone through this, if anybody's listening to this who wants to get involved in this to kind of help promote this sort of lifestyle, to help promote this change, how do you like what are your top like two, three tips for anybody who, you know, might want to get involved in order to to help push this policy policy forward? Uh, a very biased response to, to this question is just to say, come and join the Plumia community. So um, the Plumia project that I run, um, we have a community that is currently situated on Discord, and we are going to be rolling out a whole bunch of different ways to kind of support our work around the Nomad Passport, the concept of a nomad internet country uh, later this year and in an ongoing way. Um, our project is funded for the next 10 years, Plumia, so we are able to like look on quite a long time horizon and we're looking at these different uh, kind of forms of crowdsourcing uh, in, in order to kind of solve problems and kind of bring input in. Um, I did recently, if anybody listening wants to check it out, an episode of the Plumia Talks, which is our regular event series with um, somebody from NASA who is like the crowdsourcing uh, master of NASA, which was a very cool interview to do. We're essentially hoping to draw inspiration from what NASA has done in terms of helping people get involved in their their work and being able to kind of contribute in ways large and small towards the kind of larger cause of space I think we're really hoping to kind of do that um, with the nomad community as well so um, our website is plumia.org 
you'll find a link to sign up and join the community there. So please come and get involved. I think on a more kind of individual level, fearlessness is kind of what you have to go in in with if you're going to kind of work in this area of essentially trying to change the world through institutions, through policy. And in a in a small way, I think that something anybody can do is think about um, the contacts that they have available to them, maybe places where they have a particular connection and the different conversations they might be able to have. And it can be as small as a single conversation where you sit down with somebody who is influential in that community um, and you explain to them what a nomad is and you explain to them what is possible, uh, like in terms of why nomads might benefit them, what kind of motivates nomads. But I think right now, so much of the work that needs to be done is educational. And it's really just about starting those conversations and making sure that nomads are in dialogue rather than kind of living in the shadows. You know, the first 10 years of the movement, we were all kind of like living in gray areas and trying to not accidentally get drunk with a border official. And now I think we're, we're very much kind of like maturing as a community. And it's really important on an individual level to realize that your experience and the way that you're living your life is very valid. And actually you need to share it with people and that you're going to be accepted and that we as kind of a community and a force are able to drive the world forward in a really positive direction uh, if we put our collective minds to it. Well, Lauren, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been um, a ton of fun. I've really, really enjoyed this. I hope that you have as well. Let people listening know, um, where can they find out more about you? Where can they get the book? You've already mentioned Plumia, but just, you know, any links that you think uh, would be valuable to people and that you want them to check out? Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. Um, and yeah, so you can find out about my book, Global Natives, by going to holloway.com slash GN. Um, and I have a newsletter, which you can find out about um, at lraz.io um, slash newsletter. Um, and finally, I'm on Twitter. So please come and say hello if you're interested in any of the ideas that, uh, that Miko and I have discussed today. I would love to hear from you. Well, perfect. We're going to have links to all of that in the show notes. So if you're listening, don't feel like you have to remember all that. Just head over to the show notes and uh, they'll be right there. Uh, Lauren, again, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a ton of fun.